Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the 2020 Australian of the Year, Dr. James Muhi, on the show. I just wanted to say up front that this is such an important podcast. The knowledge shared by James, if utilized correctly, can have an extreme impact not only on our lives, but on our kids' lives, on our family, on our friends and our colleagues. So I'd love for you to share it as to as many people as possible because it is a message that really needs to get out there. So a bit about James. Dr. James Mukey is an Adelaide-based ophthalmologist with over 35 years of experience, having practised all over the world in countries such as Kenya, Jerusalem and London. Through his profound experience, James has taught the diagnosis and management of eye cancer in 10 countries in Asia. He's founded the non-for-profit organisation Sight for All in 2008 and turned his boundless energy into a fight against blindness in the Aboriginal and mainstream communities of Australia and some of the poorest countries in the world. Sight for All's comprehensive and sustainable projects are now impacting the lives of over 1 million people each year. His commitment to social impact and humanitarian endeavours has earned him a number of awards, including the Order of Australia in 2012, the Australian Medical Association President's Leadership Award in 2013, Ernst Young Social Entrepreneur for Australia in 2015, and in 2020 he was awarded Australian of the Year for his 32 years of humanitarian work. He's now using this powerful platform to raise awareness of our poor diet, laden with sugar, which has devastating effects on Australians. In this episode, Dr. James and I talked about his incredible journey that led him to become the world-renowned ophthalmologist and the Australian of the Year in 2020. We deep dive into the amazing impact his not-for-profit site for all is having globally, which is the ultimate mission to create a world where everyone can see. Using his platform as Australian of the Year, James is passionate about educating the world on the root cause of diabetes and preventing a looming health catastrophe. He wants to challenge our perception and our relationship with sugar and he states that sugar is as toxic and addictive as nicotine. He walked us through the growing cases of type 2 diabetes and a way in which we can avoid it. We also spoke about one of his patients, Neil, who, as a result of his extreme sugar intake, led to Neil waking up one morning completely blind, which then led to a further nine separate amputation operations. The negative effects that sugar has on our health and the correlation between sugar and blindness is very confronting. James also shared his thoughts on what the future looks like for the human race if we keep going down the path of fast foods, sugars, alcohol and all the above. If you love the episode, which I'm sure you will, please hit subscribe button and check us out at synergyiq.com.au and synergyiq on all the social media outlets. And remember, if, if something hits a chord with you in this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. It's a message that really needs to get out. Thanks again. 
So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have the very, very intelligent Dr. James Mukey on the show. Welcome. James. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be here this morning. First and foremost, I just want to kick off with a big thank you. Uh, the work you are doing, the research and, and the work that you're doing around the world globally on, on blindness and on the type 2 diabetes and the, and the war against type 2 diabetes is, is amazing, which earned you honours as Australian of the Year in 2020. So just want to kick off the show by saying thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. In fact, I won the award on the work I was doing with my not-for-profit site for all, but I decided to use the platform to raise awareness of type 2 diabetes. Excellent. Excellent. So I just, before we kick off and get into the nitty-gritties of all the work you're doing at Site for All and the the blindness and and type 2 diabetes, wouldn't mind knowing a little bit about your story. You're an ophthalmologist uh, by trade and would love to hear about your, uh, your journey to where we find ourselves today. Yeah, it's a long journey. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> let's, we got? Let's, let's dive. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm an ophthalmologist and I'm an eye surgeon. So I've been an ophthalmologist now since uh, about 31 years, actually. Right. But it's a medical specialty, so I had to do medicine. And uh, I, I actually – I was born here in Adelaide. Uh, Dad got a job with the CSIRO in Canberra. So I left at the age of five and I uh, went to school in Canberra. Excellent. Uh, I wanted to go to Sydney University because that were all my mates were going, my girlfriend was going. Yeah. Uh, back in, when would that have been, 1982. Um, unfortunately, I missed out on Sydney Uni by one mark. Oh, wow. So I decided to come back to Adelaide because family was from here, had friends here, and uh, I was comfortable with Adelaide. So yeah. that's where I headed. And uh, I undertook medical school here at Adelaide University and um, very much enjoyed that and loved uh, setting up a life here in Adelaide. Yeah. Having said that, I've travelled a bit overseas and lived overseas uh, in between that time. After my internship, which was at the Royal Adelaide Adelaide Hospital, Mm -hmm. I uh, went and worked as a volunteer doctor in Kenya uh, in 1989. Uh, I travelled extensively through Africa, backpacked in those days, and then came back here, uh, did my ophthalmology training, uh, and then following that, my final year of ophthalmology, I um, spent... In Jerusalem, at St. John's Eye Hospital, as a a general ophthalmologist, which was another fascinating year, really did cement a passion for fighting blindness in poorer communities. Uh, Following that experience, my wife and I spent some time in the UK uh, and I did some subspecialty training in primarily eye cancer. So I'm an eye cancer specialist, okay. which sounds pretty obscure, which yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, eye cancer is a... Is it a, is it a common thing? No, no. It's, it's rare and yeah. it doesn't form the majority of my practice, yeah. uh, but it forms a significant part. And at the time when I returned to Adelaide in uh, 19, when was that, 1998, I was the only eye cancer specialist really in the western half of Australia. Yeah, there was wow. only three of us in Australia at the time, one in Sydney, Melbourne. And so talk about niche. <laughs> yeah, very much a niche. Uh, so we were sending patients that needed treatment interstate and yeah, so there was wow. a need for it and uh, over the 20-odd years I've been back, was it now that, that would be uh, twenty, yeah, 23 years that I've been back, I've been building that practice and uh, uh, providing an important service for the people of South Australia. Although it is rare, I have one of the largest series of eye cancer on the surface of the eye in the world and it's because of our exposure to sunlight, particularly in rural and farming communities. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm also seeing patients with melanoma in the eyes, uh, and which is uh, 
most people wouldn't have heard of yeah, but yeah. unrelated to sun exposure. Is it kind of like the eye spots and is that what you see? Is, is it a visible thing or is it behind the eye or how does it, what, does it, what does it look like? Yes, you can, you can get develop uh, melanoma on the surface of yeah. the eye or inside the eye or mm. inside the eye is more common and generally you wouldn't be able to see that's happening uh, yeah. at all if it does impact on your vision, which is usually the way it presents. Sometimes it's just picked up by an optometrist at a at an optometry visit, but yeah, if right. um, if it's starting to impact on the vision, that's maybe yeah, how it's I'm also worried. picked up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the other the other one that I dealt with over the years is a is a childhood eye cancer called retinoblastoma, which is actually the most curable of eye cancers, and that's what I've been involved in teaching throughout Asia as well, and uh, developing expertise in that uh, in that uh, subspecialty. <laughs> Brilliant work, and, <laughs> and kudos to all the work that you're doing, and, and, and thank you again. Uh, what was it about the eyes that drew you in, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of play on words there, but what, why, uh, when you're younger and you're going through and you're saying you want to go to Sydney University, you come home to Adelaide to study ophthalmology, why, what was that that was inside you that was saying, this is something that I need to do? Sure, I knew from very early years that I wanted to be a doctor, firstly. Yeah. And then I wanted to be a surgeon. I loved working with my hands. Mm -hmm. In fact, back when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, those sort of age, I was uh, I used to build uh, model airplanes from World War II or tanks, things like that, and very intricate models and paint them. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you may have done I the have same. Done, absolutely. That, so those were the days probably before. Probably not to the skill level that you might have, <laughs> well, but. Uh, uh, certainly the days before computer games yeah, and, and right. smartphones and things like that. So I used to love working with my hands. So uh, I wanted to be a surgeon and uh, I worked towards that through, through uh, well, I worked towards getting into medicine at high school and then through medical school to, to become a surgeon. And particularly because I love this fine work with my hands, uh, I love the idea of microsurgery. So there are a number of areas where you can practice microsurgery. One of them is plastic surgery, one of them is neurosurgery, and the other is ophthalmology. And during my internship, I undertook placements in neurosurgery and general surgery. Uh, there was no opportunity to do ophthalmology, but uh, it, was the th it was the one thing that really, really appealed to me. Mm. I went to, to Kenya uh, in, at the end of my fifth year of medical school, and Whilst I was there, I spent three months in Kenya, I came across this little hospital in the mountains in central Kenya, a little hospital called Tumutumu, about two hours north of Nairobi. And I just fell in love with this place and thought one day I'd want to come back here and, and live and work. And so uh, during my internship, I wrote to uh, the director of the hospital and I said, I'd, I'd like to come and work here for a year. And so he, he welcomed me to come back. And so once I finished my internship, I headed off to Africa, travelled for a bit Brilliant. and then came back and, and worked at this. What was it about the African world that, that you decided you loved? And, and, you know, Australia is such a beautiful place to live. <laughs> yeah. What drew you to uh, Africa? Well, this really, again, dates back to my childhood. Yeah. So around those times I was wanting to, do, um, uh, to be a doctor and, and to also perform surgery. I'd had this love affair with Africa, not that I'd ever been there, but I just knew um, the, the, the appeal of the wildlife yeah. and, and also the, the, the scenery and the, uh, the deep, dark jungles had this mysterious appeal, the endless savannas. So I, um, when I was a young boy, I used to love watching shows about Africa on TV, Kimber the White Lion, which was mm -hmm. a cartoon, mm -hmm. Tarzan of the Apes, uh, and also Dactari, which was a, 
uh, a TV series from the 60s, actually, but it was about a doctor in East Africa and that held huge appeal. So mm. you imagine at the age of whatever I was, six or seven, wanting to be a doctor and wanting to work as a doctor in Africa and then finally realising that dream and, and actually becoming a Daktari. So mm. Daktari means doctor in Swahili. So okay. when I landed in Kenya and uh, after my internship, I was... My, my own real life Daktari. So, so your own TV show. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually during my internship, I was becoming a little disillusioned with medicine. Mm. Uh, this was my first year of earning, earning uh, money and it was my first year of practicing real medicine. But Why, I, why was that? Uh, like why were you becoming? Yeah, because uh, really through that year, I was mainly encountering people, patients, who had diseases that were chronic and self-inflicted. Yeah, okay. So the opportunity to provide a cure uh, – often wasn't there. These yeah. pe people had self-inflicted diseases, mainly related to smoking back then, mm -hmm. but also a poor diet was starting to come into play. So um, um, a cure wasn't always possible. It was yeah. really just alleviating symptoms, prolonging life. Check. And it, frustra it frustrated me. My personality is one that I like to have a project and I like to be able to complete that project. Yeah. So you can imagine that frustrated me, the, the, uh, the opportunity or not having the opportunity to provide that cure. So I was actually starting to rethink whether I wanted to truly do medicine. But mm -hmm. I thought, well, let's, let's head off to Africa, see um, how that year uh, inspires me. And it really did. So during that year, now I was encountering patients that didn't have self-inflicted chronic diseases, mainly diseases that were infectious, so malaria, tuberculosis. So they were imminently curable and uh, that really that it suited my personality. And so... Uh, and it reinvigorated for me a love of medicine, uh, but more importantly, it instilled a passion to want to pursue a career in public health. And then the idea of combining public health with surgery, but particularly microsurgery and in particular ophthalmology, so to fight blindness in poorer communities, was the thing that, that really drove me down the pathway of ophthalmology. And the leading cause of blindness uh, in the world is cataract. It's a 15-minute operation. It's a very beautiful and sophisticated operation, mm -hmm. but it is the opportunity to provide a cure, quite literally, within 15, 15 minutes. minutes. And, is, and that the, is that when people say, I've got laser eye surgery? Is that what the cataract surgery uh, no, is? No, that's, that's a different thing. That's a different that's thing a different again? Thing. That's, that's really to, for people who have to wear glasses, okay. what we call a refractive error, yep. and the opportunity to, to shape their cornea so that they can, they can, they can throw okay. away their glasses. So a cataract is the clouding of the lens inside okay. the eye that slowly develops as we age. It's, a, it's a, something that happens to all of us mm -hmm. if we live long enough, um, but it is the leading cause of blindness in the world makes up about 50% of cases worldwide, but in poorer countries, uh, it is by far the leading cause of blindness. So, and that's why we in, know. In the ageing population or across the, the board? Uh, both actually. So, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so here in Australia, it was the leading cause of blindness uh, across the board. Yeah, okay. Uh, and and uh, over the years, the number of ophthalmologists have increased, um, the capacity to do sophisticated but also um, timely surgery in patients very very used to be when you had a cataract operation you used to have to sit in bed or lie in bed for two weeks with your head in sandbags oh, so you really? wouldn't move but now these days it's day wow. surgery it's a 15 minute local anesthesia so it's, it's a it's a it's a wonderful operation and walk out and you can see as normal yeah we'll literally take the pad off the next day and and oh, wow. potentially you know back to Excellent. driving level vision at least and so yeah so uh, cataract cataract is uh, imminently treatable mm -hmm. uh, and it is uh, 
but it does make up the bulk of blindness in poorer communities. And that's why in poorer communities, about 90% of the blindness is, is what we call avoidable blindness. So it's mm. either preventable or treatable. But in the case of cataract surgery, it's, it's avoidable. So, um, but, you know, if it worldwide, it makes up about 50% of cases. The other 50% of, of blindness are due to a number of other entities. And um, so there were quite literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of, of different eye diseases. And many, many are blinding. And some, uh, such as what I mentioned before, retinoblastoma, some eye cancers are potentially deadly, even disfiguring. And so in poorer communities, uh, many of these diseases beyond cataract had really been poorly managed, even neglected in some countries. And that's where really Sightful uh, has come to the fore to mm. address um, comprehensively all blinding diseases, not just cataract. Yeah, well, I think look, Sight for All, the mission for Sight for All is to create a world where everyone can see. Now, that, that's a... That's an out there vision, right? That that, that uh, you've uh, embarked on, which is an amazing. And uh, so, and the other, yeah, eighty percent of the world's blindness is avoidable. That that's an alarming statistic in its own right. How do we? What is the low hanging fruit to avoid blindness? Yeah, so it is it is a very what we call big, hairy, audacious mm. goal. Create a world yeah. where everyone can see, but it's important to have such a goal. Because it's something to strive for. Spot on. And uh, so Cypherall has this 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 BHAG, what we call big yep. audacious yep. goal, yep. creating a world where everyone can see. And so, you know, if you realize it's actually 90% now, it used to be yeah. 80%, but it's up to 90% yeah. avoidable blindness. And there are about 43 million people in the world who are blind, but many, many more than that that also have, uh, are not blind, but have a low level of vision, um, you know, in the hundreds of millions. And so if we're saying that cataract is that leading cause of blindness, and yet it is a very treatable operation, then we should be able to really nail yeah. uh, a significant proportion of that avoidable blindness at least. So the other 10% worldwide uh, is unavoidable, and, and many of those would be genetic or inherited mm -hmm. diseases, which at this point in time uh, we can't address. But mm -hmm. we also have a research arm which is looking at, at uh, being able to potentially um, uh, manage some of these at this point in time, unavoidable causes of blindness. So in in Australia, I mentioned that cataract was the leading cause of blindness some years ago, but now we have enough ophthalmologists and enough expertise and the infrastructure and the affordability uh, to be able to do that here. Uh, and so it is now no longer the leading cause of blindness, but in poorer communities, um, often uh, in many situations, uh, sorry, in many countries, particularly in regional areas, there may not be eye centres or ophthalmologists, or even when there are ophthalmologists, there may not be uh, the equipment that they can use to be able to perform the surgery. And so that's why uh, it is still a big, big problem in these poorer communities. Uh, and even if there is the equipment, patients may not be able to afford them because yeah. in most of these countries, it's not free like no. it is here in Australia with our Medicare system. Yeah, it's amazing. Look, and, and again, the Australian of the Year come off the back of the Sight for All mission, which is, you know, like you said, the BHAG goal talk us through that and how the whole um, how the whole Australian of the Year came about. Num Firstly and foremost, I'm, a, I'm an emotional, empath empathic uh, person. I, I, I like the emotion in all of it. How did you feel when you were announced um, Australian of the Year? Like just, you know, you set these goals and, and, and I know you're not, it, it seems to me as if you're not about the personal accolades, it's about the, you know, the greater good, but there must have been something 
inside that felt good when you were when you were awarded that to Australia of the Year? Oh, naturally, it was yeah. an amazing experience, and fortunately, it was just before COVID struck yeah. early last year, and and I had all of my family there, so I had nine family members in the audience when it yeah. happened. Uh, I was not expecting to win it. I wasn't expecting to win the South Australian Award either because you have to have that before you can go on to yeah, the national yeah. ceremony. So I was not expecting it and and particularly because the year before Richard Harris won it. So mm-hmm. here's another doctor from Adelaide. Yeah. Were they going to give it to a, a doctor from Adelaide two years in a row? I didn't, didn't think, think so. so. And The odds so were against you. The odds were definitely against me and I, I, I knew that myself and I kept on hearing that from people. So... Uh, when my name was called out, it was like, "Whoa, you know, this is this is uh, this is a huge shock." Uh, but we had to be prepared. So all of us who were finalists had to have a speech ready. So I had yeah. my speech ready. I knew I wanted to to raise awareness about type two diabetes and the dangers of sugar in our poor diet. So I was prepared for that, but not expecting it. But I think for me, the most um, important. I mean, it was a lovely accolade for me and it kind of, uh, you know, all of the the decades really and the quite literally thousands of hours yeah. that I've volunteered. The blood, sweat uh, and tears, right? Yeah, really, it is it is quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, and it sort of justifies that, which is nice. But more importantly, I felt this was now the opportunity for Sight for All to get the recognition that it really deserves. Mm. You know, we... Uh, we're doing wonderful work and I can share some stories about that in a moment. But we were really still struggling with with uh, fundraising and, and, and money coming into the organisation to really continue to do, not just to continue to do the work, but also to, to grow because I know what we were doing was um, really powerful, high-impact, sustainable. Uh, uh, however, you know, there's so many charitable organisations in Australia that that money gets diluted, and yeah. uh, uh, you know, unless you have a, a passion for for blindness, it's, let's say it's affected yourself or your family, yeah. or if you have a passion for development in poorer parts of the world, particularly Asia, you know, it, it's not always easy to find that money. And uh, so, uh, I thought here's an opportunity. Site for all is going to get recognised. The money will start flowing in, and we'll be able to grow the organisation. And all sorts of wonderful things, and lo and behold, what happens next is COVID pandemic. COVID comes out yeah. on the back of the the bushfires, of course, and that really directed a lot of the the charitable dollar as well. But certainly, when um, when COVID hit, that just scuttled everything. And in fact, our fundraising quite literally, literally flatlined, perhaps even yeah. dropped off a little, uh, which was which was yeah, and still to this day, it's terribly frustrating that that on the back of this amazing opportunity, we've not been able to. Leverage off it to flourish. Yeah. Mm. So tell us some of the about some of the work that you are doing at Site for All, and you know some of the good stories that are coming out of it. Sure, sure. So Site for All is a social impact organisation, quite clearly dedicated towards fighting blindness. Uh, we um, really founded in two thousand and seven on the back of work that a number of us were doing uh, from the Royal Adelaide Hospital here in Adelaide uh, uh, in those um, early years after I returned from my training overseas. And um, so we, we we launched uh, in 2008, you know, we registered it in 2008 with a vision of creating a world that everyone can see and with four key strategies to try and achieve that. So the strategies are research, education, supporting infrastructure and raising awareness. So I can tell you a story that really captures that mm-hmm. uh, the best the best way. Uh, I love so, a good story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So uh, 
one of the things, one of the really powerful, if not the single most powerful moment in my clinical career was being involved in the childhood blindness study in Myanmar uh, back in 2007. And uh, there's a a bit of a story leading up to that, but... um, and, and I'd been involved in, in teaching uh, in Myanmar and growing um, their ability to, to, to treat all blinding diseases up to that point. I was even involved in an adult blindness study in Myanmar with my colleagues here uh, in 2005, and that, that was an interesting experience. Actually, you, you mentioned before about um, cataract affecting people uh, elderly people or people of all ages. Yep. Certainly there is something called congenital cataract, so you can actually be born with cataract, and there okay. are a number of causes for that, but senile cataract or uh, aging cataract is the most common. Now, I was in my early 40s at the time, and when I was involved in that adult blindness study in central Myanmar, and so there were patients that were younger than me who had a senile type of cataract. And, you know, We were only seeing patients or people in that study from the age of 40 up. But there were people at the age of 40 who were visually impaired, even blind due to their cataract. That's something you just do not see mm. here. And so that was like quite staggering to me. Mm. Anyway, that was a, a really powerful study that led to all sorts of interesting uh, outcomes, which we can talk about later. But coming then on the back of that study, I thought it would be a great opportunity to see what's happening in children in this country. We determined that cataract was the leading cause of blindness and even patients uh, in that study in 2005 uh, who'd had cataract surgery, many of them are still blind, which was quite an extraordinary yeah. uh, encounter as well. So I thought, let, let's go back and, and, and undertake a childhood blindness study. This involved visiting all of the schools for the blind throughout the country, and at the time there were about seven. And the results were like, wow, uh, it was quite disturbing, quite confronting. Firstly, we found that uh, nearly half of the kids at schools for the blind had blindness that could have been prevented or treated. Nearly half were needlessly blind, shouldn't even be at those schools. But the finding that really impacted on myself uh, was the leading cause of blindness that we discovered, which was measles. Okay. And and this was quite simply in, in children who had not been vaccinated, so they were susceptible to uh, the complications yeah, well. of measles, one of which is damage to the cornea, you know, the window to our eyesight. And um, that damage is quite devastating. Uh, it's generally irreversibly blinding. It's also horribly disfiguring. So for myself uh, to be surrounded by children who are irreversibly needlessly uh, blind at schools for the blind across the country was so so yeah. incredibly powerful especially considering we have a cure for for measles right well no we, we don't have a cure we have a we have a prevention oh, sorry so, yes, so correct you know, i talked about avoidable blindness so uh, measles i would say would be absolutely a preventable cause of blindness it costs less than a dollar to prevent measles measles in a child through the vaccination program uh but if you develop measles keratitis or inflammation of the cornea, uh, yes, it's treatable. Generally in a poorer country, in a regional area where services are not there, mm. it's going to be devastating and blinding. Uh, whereas cataract is, at this point, the senile type of cataract is not preventable, mm. but it is highly treatable. So it's interesting to see the, the comparison between those two. So this was a highly preventable cause of blindness. 
quite simply because there was huge paranoia amongst the uh, government at the time about measles vaccination. So the program had, was firstly not, not uh, providing the reach that it needed. You know, we're going through mm. uh, an interesting uh, experience with vaccination here in Australia. Uh, in the world. And, and in the world, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can imagine in, in some of these poorer countries where um, how on earth in countries of a billion people are they going to reach? We're, we're struggling even to reach yeah. 20, yeah. 25 million, but uh, how in a yeah, country of a billion people? So, so you can imagine then. So here's a country back, uh, this was 2007, measles vaccination program was not reaching regional areas. Um, children were becoming blind. Um, because of lack of herd immunity, so it shows you how herd immunity works. You know, the ch if you develop measles, particularly if you're in a poorer part of the world, often there's an element of malnourishment which can make measles a, a deadly disease. Mm -hmm. And so kids were dying from it. And if they weren't dying, they were had, had devastating long-term complications such as blindness. So it was just such a powerful moment for me. Uh, and the kids, I, I don't really even want to try and describe how it looks because it is it is quite a disturbing thing and and, and quite literally you have a, a sea of children who are just disfigured uh, and blind from this was you know each each evening we'd get back after the study and we'd be chatting around dinner having a having a beer or a gin and tonic mm. and just head you know head in hands and you know tears really how did this happen so so once what was the case? Like, what was the case group study? How, how many children were you working with? Not a huge amount. Uh, it was over, it was from memory. It was over two hundred. Yeah. Um, but again, seven schools for the blind across the country, uh, in a poorer country of over fifty million people. Yeah, there were only over, just over two hundred kids. In maybe it was over three hundred, something like that. Anyway, not that many. Yeah. So the vast majority of children weren't even making it to a school for the blind. That was another disturbing oh, uh, revelation that, that kids weren't even getting to the schools, probably hidden away in their villages, perhaps a source of shame uh, hmm. to their families and certainly a burden on their families during yeah. the blindness. So, you know, very, very disturbing for me as a doctor to see such a preventable situation just completely out of hand. So I got home, I wrote the, the paper, we published the paper and I felt very much that, that something needed to be done here. So once we had the the paper published in a major international journal. I went back, I met with the health minister, I laid the paper on his lap and I said, we have a problem here. And he, he read the abstract, looked at the conclusion, looked up at me and said, I thought we were doing better. So the good thing about that, so this is where powerful research can actually have an impact. He then allowed us uh, to, to um, bring an eye surgeon to Australia to train as a children's eye surgeon, what mm -hmm. we call a paediatric ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. So on the back of that very powerful study and my advocacy and meeting with the health minister, we were able to bring an eye surgeon to Australia, and, uh, a young man named Dr. Tan Tun Ong. He was a young ophthalmologist at the main teaching centre, the Yangon Eye Hospital in the capital city. Mm -hmm. And so he spent a year with myself and my colleagues at the Women's and Children's Hospital in 2010 training to be a paediatric ophthalmologist. So he went home at the end of that hands-on year of training as the very first paediatric ophthalmologist in his country. Brilliant. We sent him up in the country's first children's eye unit at Yangon Eye Hospital. Uh, and I remember taking the kit of equipment over and we set it up. And, um, and then he, he literally uh, was on his way. So wind the clock forward 10 years. Uh, I actually went back early last year, again, just before the, panic, the pandemic struck. Um, 
um, creating a documentary about his work because it's so inspiring. Great. So I'm back to do the second stage of filming early last year. And uh, he's now providing close to 30,000 treatments to kids every single year. Wow. Absolutely staggering. So from that one year of training, set him up with the equipment, he is now having huge, huge impact alone. But more importantly, in 2015, he finished training the second children's eye oh, surgeon. Great. And he now trains at least two every year. So this is where oh, the sustainability the, factor yeah. comes in. So if you look at that this story. The, the compounding effect. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, that story demonstrates the research, the power of research, the power of education, and then supporting that education with the appropriate equipment. Yeah. Time and effort and purpose, right? Exactly. So the equipment involves diagnostic equipment, which uh, was not there, and, and surgical instruments specifically for childhood uh, blinding problems, which was also not there. And then quite simply doing that, and off you go. And, and you can see that, that um, him able to train his own colleagues past, even if he's not training other paediatric ophthalmologists, he's there in his main teaching centre training ophthalmologists who are coming through the system so that they know and understand blinding problems of childhood. Are they vaccinating them with the, yeah. as well? Yeah, right. so yeah no, good point. That's the other part of the story. And again, <laughs> I, that same visit when I met the health minister, I went uh, and met with UNICEF who were running the measles vaccination program. Great. And that prompted them to upscale the measles vaccination program, which they have done. And I don't have the, the data on that. Yeah. But actually, we went back in 2018 to do a follow-up childhood blindness study, so just, just over 10 years later, and we found that the uh, level of avoidable blindness had dropped from something like 47.3% to 37.8%. So it had dropped. Um, it's not a huge drop, but it's a significant drop, uh, and it's in the right direction. And right. so... As Dr. Tantanong trains more of his colleagues and collectively they treat more children, then we expect that, this uh, to, to ripple effect will, will, will be very, um, very, very powerful. Now, if you realise uh, paediatric ophthalmology is only one of 10 subspecialty areas of my profession. Yeah, well. So we've trained paediatric ophthalmologists through now, I think, something like nine countries in Asia. But we've also trained in all of the subspecialty areas of the profession, and not just ophthalmology, also in optometry as well. And so... If we calculate um, um, the impact of the work we're doing, it's it's certainly over a million people every year. So, uh, man, that's why I receive the awards through, through uh, my facilitation and, and uh, of that process, and it's it's really powerful, really exciting. And so that, to me, is the joy. I mean, to to go back and to hear the story of Dr. Tanton on what drove him, and then to watch him in action we, we did uh, filmed him in a number of scenarios and i've never been prouder mm. of uh, of course i'm very proud of my family my kids achievements but beyond that this is one of the most single powerful moments that i've ever had in my life to watch this young man and the mastery of of my profession of his profession oh wow so 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 proud to, to see and experience that and that's just one very powerful story of the work that we do, but we've now trained uh, subspecialists in, in um, probably close to 100 now uh, across Asia. So you can imagine they're all doing amazing work and it's yes. just a, a special thing to, to watch someone with a mastery that, that you'd been involved in the training of and, and to see the impact of that is That is, to me, you know, people often ask me, what's it like to take the pad off and someone can see again? Well, that's a special thing, but there's nothing more special to, than to watch someone that you've trained 
having an impact right now. Mm. It's um, really, it really hits the mark that you're trying to achieve, which is create a world where everyone can see. You must, you must go to bed every night, you know, feeling very grateful and, and satisfied with some of the work you don't. I know you're only not even really commence what you really want to achieve, but uh, it must be a great feeling knowing that you are having an impact on the on the world and and the lives of of many many people, including especially the young children who can grow up and have a life and potentially, you know, create or become ophthalmologists themselves yes, yeah. to the to where they can then go and. Uh, have more of an impact or even cure cancer or whatever it might be yeah. like, like yeah. these these young children who never would have stood a chance now now do so it must be a great feeling you're, you're so right and and daniel when um even when you know, that, that minority of children that do get to a school for the blind even when they do education sadly in poorer countries is substandard mm. and there's limited prospects for them for certainly for a well-paying career or a fruitful life so to be able to have an impact on that, and if we actually add up the number of years a person has to live with their blindness, childhood blindness is second after cataract as the leading cause of blindness in the world. So if you're able to turn that around, it, it, uh, that, is, that is special because then a child has a lifetime to uh, fulfill their lives and to contribute to their family, to their community, to their society, their country really. So it's, uh, it also has actually an impact on the economy of the country. So it's been calculated that for every dollar spent on fighting blindness, about $4 is returned to the community. Yeah, so wow. we're not just Four fighting blindness, amount, yeah. we're fighting poverty as well. Good, so good it's return on investment. That, yeah, right exactly. Um, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, you are using, well, you use the platform of the Australian of the Year to talk about type 2 diabetes yeah. and blindness. Um, are you able to elaborate on that now? Sure. There, there is the, the, the video on YouTube that you have um, – called Blinded by Sugar, mm. it's uh, discussing a client of yours, Neil Hansel. It, it, it's pretty confronting, really diving into what he's gone through. He, he said something in that video which says, I went, to, I went to bed one night with and saw my wife's face for the last time. Mm. I woke mm. up the next morning and I couldn't see. I went back to sleep thinking, is something wrong here? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go back to sleep. I'll wake up again later and, and know my vision's gone. Uh, he also said, my uh, not being able to see my grandchildren's smiles. Right, all these things that you just take so, for mm -hmm. granted. It's a really powerful story. Then he went on to have, having you know amputation and, and everything like that mm -hmm. as a result of, uh, of his type 2 diabetes. And, and can you just deep dive into this? story for us and and the and the message that you're trying to uh, convey in that world of course yeah so asia is home to half the world's blind adults and two-thirds of the world's blind kids and so that's where our focus is but we also feel we have a responsibility to fight blindness here in australia both in mainstream and aboriginal communities because there are significant blinding issues here in this country mm -hmm. despite the fact that we have uh, access and affordability of eye care so for me, as an ophthalmologist of 31 years, uh, for that entire duration, I've been fighting or, or trying to treat the blinding impact of diabetes. And what I've noticed over that period of time, over three decades, is every year seeing more and more patients who are losing vision, even going blind due to their diabetes, but particularly type 2, which makes up about 90% of cases and is a largely avoidable man-made dietary disease. Mm -hmm. is, so just elaborating on that, is it? 
too much sugar, too much bad, poor diet? What What is the cause of type? Yes. Yeah, so our, our interestingly, our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death than alcohol, smoking or inactivity combined. And it's particularly a, a diet that's laden with sugary drinks and ultra-processed foods. Which yeah, are wow. So awesome. that's the real pandemic then? That is, uh, yeah. And if we look at 2020 last year, during my year, we lost 15 times more lives to type 2 than to COVID-19. <laughs> so um, it, it is, a, is a big, big problem. So, so type 2 is, is um, a blinding disease. And blindness is the most feared complication of type 2. Amputation of a leg due to gangrene is the second most feared complication, but there are a myriad of other complications. 80% of patients with type 2 will ultimately die of a thrombotic complication such as stroke or heart attack. 70% will develop dementia. So it's a, it's a devastating disease that impacts on, on, on not just the individual but the family as well. And we now have about 1.7 million people in this country with type 2 diabetes. And um, Is it reversible? We, well, that's, it's, it's largely preventable and potentially reversible or we can put type 2 diabetes into remission. Some people prefer to use remission rather than Within reversibility. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, it, there is certainly uh, plenty of evidence to suggest that that's the case. But if you look at some poorer parts of Australia, so Greater Western Sydney is an example, 50% of the adult population over the age of 24 have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes oh, yeah. and, and we have many other poor socioeconomic areas in this country where type 2 diabetes is, is getting out of control. So it's a big, big problem. I mentioned that, yes, it's a blinding problem. Why is it such a blinding problem? Um, well, there are reasons why it is a blinding problem, one of which is the growth of type 2 diabetes, um, but also the fact 98% of the blindness due to diabetes is preventable or treatable. So nearly all preventable or treatable. But to avoid the blinding complications, Patients need to have their eyes checked on a regular basis. So in Australia, of the 1.7 million with diabetes, more than half, probably well over half, are not having these regular all-important mm. sight-saving eye checks. And that's why it's now become such a serious problem. It's actually the leading cause of blindness amongst working-age adults yeah, in this well, country. So the leading cause of blindness amongst the our demographic. Yeah. I mentioned cataract was before, um, but now diabetes. Yeah, yes. wow. So it's a, it's a big, big problem. And, and myself as an ophthalmologist, uh, yes, I've been dealing with the blinding complications of this disease for over 30 years, but never really until recently considered that it was my role or responsibility to raise awareness of the, the root cause, which is which is our poor diet for type yeah. 2. So type 1 is a different disease. That's unavoidable. It's due to an autoimmune damage to the pancreas, and it usually happens in early in life. Interestingly, type 2 used to be called maturity-onset diabetes, mm -hmm. but we're now seeing this disease developing in our children. So children in Australia as young as 7 developing type 2 due to their poor diet. In the UK, there's a child of the age of 3. Uh, that developed type 2 diabetes. So it's uh, so we're sort of straying off the, um, the track a bit. Aboriginal people, it's devastating. Aboriginal populations, there's been an 80-fold, 80-fold increase in type 2 diabetes in the past 40, 50 years. And it's absolutely devastating. What, what's, the, what's the reason for affecting the Aboriginal community? Again, more so. Again, their poor diet that okay. they've been exposed to. And it's not their traditional diet, not their ancestral diet. Yeah, yeah, okay. And yet it's a diet they've actually been encouraged so to So is it as simple as... Plant-based diet and meats, is that as simple as that? If you change your diet to a much more leaner meal, then then you'll prevent. Like, it, it, what, what, how do we prevent type mm -hmm. 2 diabetes? 
Okay. Um, so that's a big question. Yeah. I, I, should we come back? Come back to that. So, so okay. just just on the original question, which yeah. was, uh, why did I start to? Why did I take this on? Yes. Yeah. So in late two thousand and eighteen, I thought it would be interesting to do a documentary about the experience of blindness and what it means to be blind. So I selected ten people, four children who were born blind, four elderly people who were slowly going blind at the end of their life due to a condition called age-related macular degeneration, which in Australia is the leading cause of blindness in elderly Australians, but actually now is the leading cause of blindness overall. And then I chose two patients that had suddenly gone blind in both eyes due to their diabetes. Yep. And Neil Hansel, you mentioned, was, was uh, one of those ten. And the story was unbelievable and you recounted some elements of that story um, the hour and a half of the interview I did with him at the end of it I was in tears uh, the, the filmmaker was in tears the sound engineer was in tears him and his wife were in tears we were it was just the most heart-wrenching story and the crux of it yes he woke up one morning blind in both eyes and remains blind to this day and you know the loss to him of the ability to you know pursue his hobby uh, and to see the beautiful smiles on the faces of his wife and grandkids, you know, those loss of independence, ability to drive, all of those things have been absolutely devastating for him. But, you know, it's extraordinary. His, his spirit is, is quite amazing. And in fact, yesterday I was uh, involved in, in an ABC documentary series and Neil Hansel was also being interviewed and the, uh, the interviewer, the film producer, was blown away by the story. It's just so powerful. So Neil, when he first started earning money at the age of 16, uh, he was on the go. He was a, he had a busy job. I think it was a courier, something like that. And uh, he consumed four liters of soft drink every day. And ten years later, lo and behold, he developed type two diabetes. Wow. Uh, he didn't know how addictive it was. He didn't know he was doing himself damage. So and he just didn't drink water. He drank soft drink. He just he's... just yeah was on the go. And and he was he was thin. Uh, and uh, he didn't realize that he was he was uh, doing himself a damage. So wind the clock forward blind in both eyes he's had nine amputations in fact he had a nine amputations over a 14 month period ending in loss of his left leg in march last year and he's also had two heart attacks so neil has been devastated by this disease and he's become quite a uh, an advocate to raise awareness uh, about the mm. dangers of this disease when he was diagnosed he wasn't aware what lay awake for him and i think this is the problem for many patients with type 2 so that recounting of that story that powerful moment made me sit back and think gosh don't I have a, a responsibility to, to, to raise awareness, particularly about the blinding complications? And so I created a TV commercial which played nationally in late 2018. I started talking about it more. Um, we'd also created a number of, of, uh, of short films, documentaries, to raise awareness, particularly amongst Aboriginal people. We created a music video, uh, which is on the site for a website. I created a, um, a cartoon to encourage people to have regular eye checks. And we also created a, a wonderful uh, award-winning uh, documentary about cataract blindness in Aboriginal people. So interestingly, the leading cause of blindness in Aboriginal people is still cataract as it is in poorer parts of the world. But diabetes is the most rapidly growing cause of vision loss. So on the back of that, I really wanted to start raising awareness uh, of of this blinding impact that was just growing in our society and when i received the south australian award at my speech i talked about the desire to encourage people to have the regular eye checks and i received the award once again not expecting to but going forward to the national ceremony i thought if i if i am to receive this award as australian of the year 
What's our biggest health problem at the moment? Mm. It is quite simply type 2 diabetes. It's our poor metabolic health. Two-thirds of Australian adults, over two-thirds actually, are overweight or obese, and about a quarter of our kids. The majority of us are not metabolically healthy. The United States, 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy, and this is driven by our poor diet. So I thought, do I not have a responsibility of Australian of the Year to raise awareness of that and to advocate for this? And so that's that's the journey I went on once I received the award, and, and um, it started off talking about sugar and I came up with this this concept the five A's of sugar toxicity but it's, it's really evolved and grown since then because there's there's so many layers to it it's quite mm. a fascinating journey that I've had uh, but um, you, you asked me before about you know is it simply sugar uh, it, it is sugar is a large part of it uh, there are over 8,000 studies now linking sugar to a range of, of chronic diseases, um, and particular type 2 diabetes, obesity, tooth decay, and, and complications of type 2, which I mentioned some of them. But if you realise that there is another very abundant form of sugar in the form of refined carbohydrates, mm. so white rice, white flour, white potatoes, and the foods prepared from these, they are all starch, and starch is simply a long chain of glucose which breaks down into glucose when it reaches the gut. So when you're consuming refined carbohydrates, you are consuming sugar. And if you realise then that sugar and refined carbohydrates make up a significant proportion of ultra-processed foods, or what I call ultra-processed food-like substances, you can't really call them foods, uh, then you realise that, that, that uh, this is a big driver of our mm. poor health. And the, the, the other element of the, the seed oils, what we euphemistically call the vegetable oils, you know, canola, safflower, yeah. sunflower, vegetable oil, and they have been linked to chronic diseases as well, and they're another significant component of ultra-processed foods. So this is a perfect storm, and there's a gun pointed Point right, right at our livers. I'm a... My my background is Italian, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we're, the pastas, the pizzas, the gelatis, yeah. <laughs> the the cannolis, all the like you think about the Mediterranean diet. Almost it, 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 there is, I could almost guarantee there is in some families, in in the Italian community there is pasta or with ev or bread with every single meal. Yeah. <laughs> and and are, are you suggesting that that is? completely wrong or is it everything in moderation and then what does moderation look like <laughs> yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting question but uh unfortunately there is a significant proportion of of italian and mediterranean communities that do have type 2 diabetes mm. that are not metabolically he uh, healthy but if you realize that um uh, we have this grow growth of exposure to sugary drinks and ultra processed foods on top of the refined carb. Let's say if it was just a diet of refined carbohydrates, mm -hmm. and, and um, which does form, as you say, a, a significant proportion of the Mediterranean uh, yep. lifestyle. But if you throw in the mix all the sugary drinks, the orange juices, a glass of orange juice has almost as much sugar as a glass of cola, for example. Yeah, right. You throw in the mix packaged foods, ultra-processed foods, cereals. You know, we're just bombarding our bodies. And so the key to this, I mentioned that those three things, sugar, refined carbs, which are sugar in disguise and the seed oils are like a, a loaded gun pointed at the liver. The ultimate, the outcome here is what's called a fatty liver. And a fatty liver is central to this whole process, which builds on the back of a, a, a medical term called insulin resistance. And so when you develop a fatty liver, uh, then it gets to a point when you are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes where the liver can take no more fat on. And so the the fat gets exported 
away from the liver as a triglyceride and, and the triglyceride in the blood combined with the high insulin level in the blood is really the damaging thing mm. uh, in addition to the high sugar level which uh, damages the blood vessels throughout the body and that's what gives rise to the life changing and life-threatening complications of this disease. Now, if you if a person is insulin resistant, then even and one of the so the let's look at let's look at uh, just sugary drinks for example. The, the most common additive in our food and drinks is is uh, sucrose, what we know as table yep. sugars, what we yep. stir in our tea and coffee, yep. and that sucrose molecule is made up of fifty percent glucose and fifty percent fructose, and it's particularly the fructose element that is so dangerous, so damaging. Fructose is what gives sweet products okay. their, their sugary flavor. Sorry, sugary pro products their sweet flavor. It's actually not recognized as a food by the body. It does not trigger the release of insulin. Hmm. The majority of it, when it's taken into the body, is actually um, uh, metabolized by the liver, and about 30% is converted immediately to fat. So that fat is stored within the liver. As I mentioned, some of it is actually exported away as triglyceride. And, and it's, it's, it's this, the fructose component, which is, is independent of obesity, independent of the number of calories we consume, which is the damaging thing. So if you have a, a traditional diet, which does have pasta and breads, and you throw in the mix lots of sugar in the form of, of modern food and drinks that we're consuming at ridiculous amounts. On average, we're consuming 14 to 16 teaspoons of sugar every day. WHO recommends six teaspoons of sugar mm -hmm. a day. Young, young uh, teens, 14 to 18 year olds, are consuming 22 teaspoons of sugar a day. And if you look at a 600 ml bottle of, of soft drink, that in itself has about 16 teaspoons of sugar. And if you had a bottle of that every day, which many people do, 23 kilograms mm. of sugar a year. So you, you throw that in the mix yeah. of, of a, a traditional diet and then bang, you know, you're in strife. And you throw in uh, you know, junk food, you throw in fast food, you, you throw in uh, foods cooked in those seed oil, oils. Yeah. Ah, it's just it's a disaster. Well, we, <laughs> human race, right, we're a, we're a strange bunch. We, we keep doing things that are not good for us. You know, that's the reason why the helmet's invented. But, you know, we, we, we do silly things and, and we find ways to keep on doing them. Um, we know everyone, I, I reckon you'd be hard-pressed to find a human being in the Western society at very least that wouldn't know that, you know, the ice creams, the, the over, overloading in carbs and all that sort of stuff is not healthy, right? But yet we continuously do it. What is the draw for, like, why do we keep getting drawn to these foods for? Well, you know, for me, the idea of an ice cream after dinner, and I know you've mentioned this in, in a previous conversation that we've had as well, it, it, it's almost like a reward after that or, or, you know, it's a treat at the end of the day. Um, first question is why do we keep uh, keep going back to the to the sugary treats? And, uh, and, and secondly, what is an option or another option or other options for that reward that we can give ourselves to, to you know, hit those dopamine levels? We're, we're really um, worthy of a, an entire new podcast. Yeah, episode. well, there's a whole other thing, isn't it? It really is. It's such a big conversation. And there's, it just brings to mind a, uh, an expression, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Yes. You've heard that, Gabrielle, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, has heard yeah. that. The whole world has heard that. In fact, I gave a presentation, a community presentation a couple of weeks ago and I asked the audience to raise their hand and every single one of them raised their hand. Now that, 
you realize, was a slogan that was popularized by John Harvey Kellogg in 1906 <laughs> to, to market his newly invented breakfast cereal, cornflakes. And yet to this day, there's no evidence to say that we need to have cereal for breakfast. In fact, we're probably doing our bodies harm because wow. more often than not, cereal is a sugary. A sugary so, so that was a marketing Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. Absolutely. I think I did see your LinkedIn post that, that mentioned that and that, that blew me away. So, because because the, there's the studies now that the fasting diet is one of the most uh, prevalent, I guess in, in in well, it's one of those ones that's catching on the sixteen eight where people are finishing yeah. eating at eight o'clock at night and then not eating till twelve o'clock the next day. They're skipping the breakfast, and the amount of people that I've heard, no, oh, no, you need breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. Yeah. Oh, it's rubbish. Yeah, it's okay. absolute rubbish. I mean, breakfast is is quite literally the breaking the fast of overnight. Well, you can break your fast whenever. Yeah, I, I do that. I break my fast at lunchtime. Yeah. And certainly you don't need to break your fast with, with carbohydrates. So when you realize that most of us are metabolically unhealthy, we actually are intolerant of carbohydrates. Mm. So ramming more carbohydrates into our body is not great. Now, you mentioned that most of us are aware of that. I'm a doctor. I'm a medical doctor, trained, understand, but actually didn't fully realize how dangerous our diet was. I, I didn't realize how addictive sugar was. I didn't realize how dangerous ultra-processed foods was. Yeah, you kind of sense it, but I don't think we fully appreciate it. And that's why it's such a problem, I think, in our society. But more to the point, so when I, leading up to the uh, receiving the award, I came up with this concept called the five A's of sugar Yeah, I was going to ask you about the five A's because yeah. that can answer a lot of these questions. Yeah. Exactly. So that does answer a lot of the question. Uh, uh, the, uh, the question. So um, just going through those. First A is addiction. So sugar is highly addictive. It's been shown to be as addictive as nicotine uh, when we consume sugary products. It activates the reward center in our brains, leading to the release of neurotransmitters such as dopamine. And they're what make us feel good, makes us want to do it again and gives us those cravings. So second A, alleviation. Mm -hmm. We often use sugar to alleviate stress and to make us feel better when we're down. So when we're stressed, the body's flooded with cortisol. And so we need to balance that by releasing feel-good chemicals such as dopamine. And sugar is yep. a, a great trigger for yeah, that. Great. Third A, accessibility. Sugar is quite literally everywhere in our lives. You can't walk into most service stations without being confronted by a wall of confectionery. Certainly can't check out from most supermarkets and stores without being enticed by half-priced yeah. sugary drinks well, I think and chocolate. To me, accessibility is the, the, one of the biggest problems I have. You know, you just, There's always something in the pantry, right? Uh, even just to cook a plate of pasta is the easiest meal because yep. it's quick, right? Yep. So accessibility yeah, I find that I'd have the most trouble with that one. Uh, well, that's right. And, and, and now with Uber Eats and stuff like that. With, with Uber Eats. Yeah, and, we're, and we're making everything easier. We, we certainly are. And also, uh, you know, when you when you quite literally can't go to a to a, a supermarket, even the post office, even the chemist these days, and the, the checkout counters are surrounded with sugary products, it's just unbelievable. Well, I think you put up a sign, uh, or, or, sorry, a LinkedIn post about a sign at a bus stop or was it? It was a similar with the big KFC sign or something like that, where uh, you know this marketing is constantly in your face. Yeah, that's right. And on one side of the bus, the sign was was a fast food, and the other sign was a public health message yeah. from our government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Cheese, right? So just going, going, finishing off those yeah, those, yeah. those other two A's because that'll explain some of the Correct. things as well. So the the fifth A is addition. So an astronomical amount of sugar is added to our food and drinks. So sorry, particularly the, fourth, the, fourth, the fourth A, the fourth sorry, fourth A. Is, is ultra-processed foods. Mm. So something like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. And there are 56 common names. I think there's something like 260-odd 
names for sugar. So that actually confuses the consumer even more. But uh, our nutritional labels don't actually tell us how much added sugar is contained within. Uh, there's even something called the Health Star rating system, which is flawed because it's actually voluntary. Only 30% of manufacturers use it. But it's also flawed because uh, many healthy products get a five-star rating. This is actually a device being designed by industry for industry and, and and orange juice is a great example of a five-star product, which has recently, this, earlier this year, been downgraded to two stars. Um, so the fifth A is advertising. Our world is absolutely flooded with yes. TV commercials yeah. and ads for sugary products. You can't walk out the door. And once you actually open your eyes to it, you, you see how much mm. is out there. It is quite staggering. You know, the bus stop, on the side of the bus, on walls of buildings, you, you name it, it's everywhere, on TV, on social media. Our kids are exposed to three commercials for unhealthy products every hour on TV during those hours that they're watching. Teens are exposed to 100 promotions for unhealthy products every month on social media. So bang, then yeah. you have the recipe for why it is so prevalent in our society. Those five A's explain it and those five A's also explain how we can get out of it. Absolutely. You know, I talked before about you You must you know, sleep well at night knowing that you're, you're changing the world in a, in a positive way. You wonder about the these big businesses and whether they're it's they're going to sleep at night knowing that they're potentially killing people or blinding people. It's, 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 uh, there's right. got to be some sort of. Um, I think they go to sleep at night thinking they're making lots of money for their shareholders because yeah, it's all about profit and profit yeah. certainly over health. There's no doubt. As I said, eight thousand plus uh, um, uh, studies showing that there is a link between sugar and, and chronic diseases and, and ultra-processed foods. There are plenty of studies showing mm. that are, these are not healthy for us, plenty of studies showing that seed oils are not healthy for us, and yet the literature is polluted with industry-funded studies. And when we know when industry funds a study, it's nearly eight times more likely to show a result favourable to that industry. And there's a really interesting study that looked at sugary drinks and obesity. Uh, 43 of the 44 studies that were not funded by industry showed a link mm. compared with none out of 26 that were funded by industry. So you can see how they they skew the data yeah. and then they can say, well, the data is inconclusive. They pollute the, the literature. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, agendas there, isn't there? Really? The predation is is unbelievable. And and really that brings me to to three overarching strategies. I mean, the, the, the top A is action. Yeah. We need action and we need action from our government. But the, the, the three overarching strategies are awareness, accountability and assistance. And if you're happy for me just to yeah, quickly touch on please, those. Please do. And so we, we do need awareness. We need awareness of the dangers of sugar, of ultra-processed foods, of fast foods. We need awareness of the preventability and reversibility of type 2 and the complications of type 2 for patients who develop it. We need awareness of, of those five A's of sugar toxicity that that sugar is and sugary products are um, addictive and that we are using them to alleviate stress. And once you realise that, you can actually put in place methods to, to either detox or to use other things to actually make you feel better. Uh, so awareness is, is really critical here. And also awareness that our current high-carb diet, this low-fat promotion, this is the other thing that we've kind of known for the last 50 years that saturated fat is bad for us. You ask anyone, saturated fat's bad for us. But actually, actually, the natural saturated fatty acids in our diet, in products such as unprocessed red meat, full-fat dairy, eggs, even dark chocolate, 
not linked to cardiovascular disease. Mm. So people still think they're putting themselves in danger yeah. by having those products. Actually, they're the best foods that we can yeah. be eating. Not all this carbohydrate, not all these cereals and grain products, not all these processed foods. So awareness is really important. Mm. And accountability. Accountability is the second A. Accountability of businesses and industry to do the right thing by us. You know, this having sweet products at checkout counters is preying on our addictions, is preying on the vulnerable, and in particular it's preying on our children, particularly when you realise that a lot of these products are at the kids' eye line. So um, the predation also seen on social media and on TV, someone needs to hold these businesses to account. They're certainly not going to do it. Uh, you know, I'm not one for sort of banning this and banning that, but certainly I think there's some predatory tactics which are uh, actually uh, preying, you know, which are preying on, on people in our society where the government needs to step in and do something about it. So accountability is really important. Yeah. Finally, assistance, and there are a number of levels of assistance. And just one example, my son, medical school, uh, third year, last year, second year medicine, he had the option of doing an elective in nutrition science. So this is the biggest health problem that we have as medical practitioners, and it's not even compulsory in medical school. Yeah. So that's just a few examples. That's scary. Um, there's a whole bunch of questions that are coming out of that, and that is, um, first and foremost, what is an acceptable amount of sugar in our diets and, and carbohydrates? And, and if we if we combat that with running and exercise and all the above, you know, does it does that does that work by combating? Mm. If I eat carbohydrate for every single meal or and have a have a, have a sugary sweet two or three times a day, but yet I'm running ten to twenty kilometers every single day, does it sort of uh, balance itself out? And secondly, what can we do? with our children and getting them and educating them because, um, you know, with this advertising and bombardment that you're saying every hour they see so many so many mm. ads. Not only that, when, they, when I send my kids to my mother-in-law, it's like <laughs> they get mm. sugared up. Like, yeah. what, what can we do in that space as well? So the two questions in well, that. Firstly, you can't outrun a bad diet and there are examples of marathon runners who are metabolically unhealthy. Yeah. Look at me, I'm, I'm tall and thin. In March last year, I found out that I had a fatty liver, so I was on the pathway uh, to, yeah. to type 2 diabetes potentially and I look at what the diet I was consuming was, was pretty bad, um, particularly the sugary products. So um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really critical for, for us to be aware you know, that, that being overweight, being obese is not the central. It's the biggest risk factor for type 2 diabetes, but it's only a marker of poor metabolic health. Mm -hmm. And when you realise there are more thin metabolically unhealthy people than there are overweight or obese metabolically unhealthy mm -hmm. people, then you realise that obesity is not the, the, the full picture here and it's really down to these these calories. And, and I mentioned before that our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death and smoking, alcohol and inactivity. Yeah. So you cannot outrun a bad diet. Exercise is critical. I love exercise. It's important for mental health because it does trigger dopamine release. You know, you go for a run, go for a walk, go for a cycle, particularly out in nature somewhere beautiful and you feel good. So that's a really good way when you're feeling down rather than going to the fridge and consuming a, hmm. a litre bottle of soft drink yeah. or grabbing a block of chocolate and consuming the whole lot. Go for a, go for a, a walk somewhere lovely. You know, that's, that's a great way of countering uh, that cortisol reaction yeah. that's flooding our bodies during anxious times. So exercise is great. For mental health, exercise is great because it makes you sleep better and having a good night's sleep is also critical in, in um, helping to prevent chronic diseases as well. And yes, uh, exercise is, in, is important, but you, you can't, uh, type 2 diabetes is not due to a lack of exercise. So exercise, I'm a big advocate for, but not to try and continue 
to consume a poor diet. Yeah. So really it's all about diet. And, you know, what can you do? Uh, I had a big bowl of ice cream after dinner every night, probably chocolate after dinner and the TV <laughs> every night. I'd have cereal for breakfast, orange juice for breakfast. I'd have white bread for lunch, rice or pasta, white potatoes for dinner. Uh, and I'd have a pack of cream biscuits every day during work. So, you know, that's just clearly not yeah. good. And, and what I did was I gave up, uh, actually I, only early last year, I thought I'd better walk the talk if I'm going to be talking <laughs> yeah. about this. So before receiving the award, I went into a detox. I did a 16-8 fast. I, I stopped having a bowl of ice cream every night. I still have one every now and then because I love it. You know, yeah. uh, yeah. I've cut back on sugar, sorry, cut back on, on chocolate, you know, have dark chocolate every now and then rather than the, the really sweet milk chocolate. And I've really cut back on confectionery. I've stopped having fruit juice. I haven't had fruit juice for, for probably a couple of years now. Haven't had soft drinks for a couple of years. Stopped eating that pack of biscuits. Stopped having cake at morning tea when someone's got a birthday at work. Um, and then cut what, out what about the for odd, breakfast. What about the odd wine or, or scotch? Or something yeah, like so that. I, I've <laughs> gone from having gin and tonics, yeah. I mentioned before, to yeah. having a whiskey. Yeah. I've gone from white wine uh, to red wine. Red, yeah. I have I love beer, but I cut back on beer because that's quite yeah. carbolicious. And so I've just and and with the refined carbs, so I'll have whole grain bread rather than white bread, but mm. not every day. I'll have brown rice rather than white rice, yeah. but not every day. Yeah, yeah. And, and wholemeal pasta rather than white pasta. Again, not every day. And just adopting a, a lower carb dietary approach. Certainly, if I had pre-diabetes, I'd go strict low carb. And if I had type 2 diabetes, I'd even be looking at a ketogenic diet where really reducing your carbs to less than 50 grams a day. So, mm. yeah, there are a lot of strategies that you can do. But detoxing from sugar is quite unpleasant. The, the symptoms are nasty, headache, fatigue, clouded thoughts, irritability, cravings, last for several days, sometimes a week or two. Um, but if you realise also things like condiments, sauces, have so much added sugar, cereals, you know, if you clear all of those products out, you'll go through this detox process a couple of panadols um judiciously help uh, relieve the symptoms but then once you actually get through that barrier you can then it's quite liberating actually mm. that you don't have to go racing to the pantry and grab you know, the yeah. biscuits and so i think that answers the kids question in regards to just educating them really on on, yep. on and changing the habit yep. not, not for not feeding them saying no when they're asking for it, right? and our grandparents yeah and our grandparents you know the grandparents really treat the kids spoil yeah. the kids yeah. yeah one for you one for me and so and it's often a bit of a battle with the <laughs> yeah. grandparents there because they see it as their their role but actually their role should be to uh, to to promote health and the kids not to promote poor health Absolutely. Now, I'm really conscious of your time, but I've got one last question before we, uh, we, we round up. Sight for all, everything that you're doing uh, in, in the world of, of diabetes type 2 blindness, the, the impact that you're having across the world, um, the mission of, of everyone um, being able to see, paint done for us. Like what, what, does, what does it look like when you've achieved your mission? What does the world look like when you've achieved your mission? <laughs> having a world where everyone can see, I mm. suppose, uh, but I don't think I'm going to see that in my lifetime. Mm. It's such an enormous, it's a, it's a, it's a worthy goal, but it's such yeah. an enormous goal and it's so far off. Um, but also with, with uh, you know, I think, I think a, um, an environment, so our food environment is diabolical in, in poor communities and in Aboriginal communities, it's bordering on criminal, what's going on. Mm. So to have an environment where we're not bombarded with sugary and ultra-processed products, mm. um, having... TV where we're not exposed to these things. So, so looking at those those yeah. five A's of toxicity, just 
relieving our environment and and having access to fresh, healthy, real foods, um, so that and also affordable for many people in, in in poorer communities. So, basically, having having a food environment which is um, which is leaning towards healthier, real food, whole food, rather than leaning toward ultra-processed food. In the United States, 62% of the American diet is ultra-processed foods, 50% of the British diet, and probably close to that here. Yeah, so right. our diet is not healthy. So to, to see people re-embracing meat and three veg, re-embracing real food, uh, and also supporting local communities and farmers, uh, you know, I think that would be a wonderful thing to see. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I am conscious of your time. We normally round off with a bunch of quick fire questions, which aren't normally quick fire. They normally dive into it. But I know you you do have to shoot off. So I just want to say thank you again uh, for for everything that you're doing in in this world and and for the for the people of this world, essentially the, the children, the the people who are suffering from type two diabetes, the the awareness that you're giving to the likes of of, of the people us, Gabrielle and myself, and everyone that's listening about um about what we can do to change our habits and change our uh, you know change our uh, everyday processes and and reaching for the chocolate bar as opposed to uh, reaching for an apple or something like that so um yeah i, re- I really appreciate it. and i know everyone uh who's listening really appreciates the work that you're doing so thank you very much for for that and thank you daniel and thank you for all you're doing to to raise awareness as well it's important to have these conversations and get these conversations out there so people start to realize it's education it's awareness raising and and what you're doing is, is really absolutely important. and i think for for the message that i'd love to sort of get out of this everyone's probably thinking this is a business podcast we're talking about but health is really important and especially in the world we talk about mental health we're we're working in a, in, a, in industries which are you know our habits and and mere stresses of what we're doing every day can can produce bad habits so the message i'm really trying to get out of this this podcast is is this awareness of how do we look after ourselves first and then hold our businesses to account yeah. as well if we're uh, and 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 what the messages that we're putting out there yeah. and so i think it's a um it's you know it starts with starts with self and then we work on from there yeah oh good on you for for getting behind it all thank perfect you. thank, thank you, you dr james muki uh, it's been a pleasure having you on uh, where can we find you linkedin is the best place uh i have dr james muki on facebook instagram and linkedin and site for all on facebook instagram linkedin youtube so there's we've got, uh, we've got the words. i would love for you to follow us yeah yeah absolutely there's some amazing videos and, and uh, when's that documentary due out there? um just going into post-production now editing so i'm hoping early next year something like that excellent we'll keep your eyes peeled and uh, we'll share it on our page when it all comes out so thanks again for your time thank you too daniel cheers bye-bye thank you once again for joining us here at creating synergy it's been great spending this time with you please jump on to the synergy iq facebook and linkedin page where the discussion continues after the show join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.